The other thing that I learned is that in sequels, you have to surprise the audience. The villains can't be that bad. They have to be some humanizing part. And you have to have some surprises. Like the villains are characters are actually heroes. Some heroes are actually the bad guys. Write the world-changing book that will help grow your personal brand and your business as it makes the world a better place. Welcome to the Author's Corner, hosted by Robin Colucci. Every episode, we bring you some of the most successful authors, as well as other industry experts, to share some inspiration, motivation, tactical strategy, and fun. We'll also talk about the challenges and trends in the publishing industry. Don't get stuck in the idea phase. Join the Author's Corner today. Start writing the book you've dreamed about. Hello, and welcome to the Author's Corner. I am your host, Robin Colucci, and today I am particularly excited to introduce to you one of my favorite people, not only a friend, but also a client. Dr. William W. Lee, MD, is an internationally renowned physician, scientist, and the author of the New York Times bestseller, Eat to Beat Disease, the new science of how your body can heal itself. His groundbreaking work has led to the development of more than 30 new medical treatments and impacts care for more than 70 diseases, including cancer, diabetes, blindness, heart disease, and obesity. His TED Talk, Can We Eat to Starve Cancer?, has garnered more than 11 million views, and Dr. Lee has appeared on Good Morning America, CNN, CNBC, The Dr. Oz Show, Rachel Ray. He's been featured in USA Today, Time Magazine, The Atlantic, and O Magazine, and the list goes on. He is president and medical director of the Angiogenesis Foundation and is leading research into COVID-19. His newest book, Eat to Beat Your Diet, Burn Fat, Heal Your Metabolism, and Live Longer, is a brand new release that he will be talking with us about today. And not only are you going to get some fantastic tips on how you can eat to beat your diet and get rid of harmful body fat and support your metabolism, but you also are going to learn some critical lessons that Dr. Lee learned in his process of formulating his sequel. This book is the sequel to his New York Times bestseller, Eat to Beat Disease. And he'll be talking specifically about what were some of the very particular things that he needed to think about as he was writing book two that's following on the heels of a New York Times bestseller. So please enjoy this episode. Get yourself a nice cup of health-promoting tea and enjoy. So Dr. William Lee, welcome to the Author's Corner. Thank you, Robin. It's a pleasure to be on. Well, it's such a treat to have you on, and this is such an exciting time because you are this week launching the uh, sequel to your New York Times bestseller, Eat to Beat Disease, Eat to Beat Your Diet. So I would just like to dive right in and have you share with our listeners a little bit about the book. And then I want to get into a little bit of how it actually came about. But first, just tell us, what is this book, Eat to Beat Your Diet? What do you mean by this? Yeah, well, I mean, though, it uh, has the word diet in the title. It's a little bit of a trick title. It's not a diet book. It's an anti-diet book because I talk about how you can actually use foods in order to be able to activate your metabolism and fight body fat, elevate your health without ever having to be on a diet. And that's really how you beat your diet, really using the science of your own body to be able to work on, uh, to go to bat for you, so to speak. I'm a doctor, I'm a scientist, and now an author. Thanks to you, largely, Robin. You know, you sort of um, pushed me out of the plane so I could learn how to pull my parachute (laughs) Um, and, uh, and have to thank you for that. But listen, the whole idea of writing a sequel to a successful first book, and I had no idea it was going to be successful, to be honest with you, 
is really because there's more story to tell. In my first book, I talked about how when it comes to food and health, it's not just about the food, it's about how your body responds to how you feed it. And the overwhelming response that I got from my readers and my agent and my publisher was really people wanted to hear more. And not only was there more to tell, but research that I do and that is going on in this field has been uh, cruising forward and revealing, pulling the cloak back on so many exciting new concepts that say, you know, it's not just about beating disease, it's actually about building your health. And when it comes to your health, actually a common denominator of your health is really having a great metabolism. And so really the sequel to my first book is kind of like Empire Strikes Back as a sequel to Star Wars. Just when you thought you blew up the Death Star, rebuilding it again, and there's a bigger <laughs> enemy. And now we have to figure out like what the new adventure is. The new adventure is really that we can actually bolster our metabolism because so much of what we thought we knew about metabolism is frankly wrong. And even doctors and nutritionists get it wrong. And so that's part of the story to tell. Same heroes, new villain, bigger set of obstacles, but a bigger payoff as well. So that's what the book is all about. I hope people like it. Yeah. Can I ask you a little bit more detail about this? Because a couple of things that occurred to me is, you know, when you were talking about a new villain, who would you name as the villain in this particular tale? Well, the villain actually is cast in this particular sequel as body fat, not obesity, not diabetes, but really the fact that, and not just body fat, actually the wrong kind of body fat and too much of it. And I think that so many villains in fiction, the truly complex stories say that the villain is not only villainous, but they have an origin story. There's a point of view in which they're not necessarily so bad. And in this book, what I introduce is the fact that body fat is not necessarily your villain. In fact, fat is very much keeps you alive. It's an organ. And it's among the jaw droppers that I actually kind of spool out um, at the very beginning of the first part of my book is that and we can talk about really sort of the construction of how to actually introduce concepts within a book. And you and I know exactly how this came about because you were involved <laughs> with helping me yeah. formulate it. But the villain is fat, but only when it's in excess. And in fact, fat as conceived that you and I had many brainstorm sessions about is found in babies. Every beautiful, wonderful baby is chubby and pudgy and it's got rolls of fat around uh, under their chin, around their belly, around their legs. They look like balloon animals that you actually twist. <laughs> right. And in fact, you know, the thing that I write about that is so true, and I've actually used this line in some of the interviews I've done about body fat, is that we've gotten used to this. And so fat is something that's wonderful in a particular context. Because if you actually saw a baby that had chiseled cheekbones and, you know, <laughs> model thin legs, like, you know, you'd think that there's something really, really wrong with this picture and with that baby's health. And you'd actually be correct. And yeah, so yeah. one of the things that I think this villain is, body fat, is it's uh, something good that can turn into something bad. And when it's bad, it's really, really bad. And so that's what I hope the readers are actually drawn into, this complex character that we tend to think of as a villain, but in fact has a backstory. And that backstory is important to appreciate because you just don't want to wipe villains off the face of the earth. You actually want to tame them. You want to actually see if the bad guy can be turned back into a good guy. Yeah, I love that. I think that's such an important thing because that has just through the media, that has just been portrayed as more of a cartoon kind of villain, right? Like all bad. <laughs> right. I mean, you know, Fat's an organ, it releases hormones and affects your brain and everything else. Fat actually contains as a container for your, it's a, it's a crucible for part of your immune system, probably 15 to 20% of your immune systems actually in your fat. So you need it to defend yourself against infections and cancer and other diseases. Fat is also a, um, a cushion. So if we didn't have body fat, our organs would split open. Like if you fell on the ground, you bumped yourself against a wall, your organs would split open instantly like an overripe tomato. Mm -hmm. And so fat is a cushion. And then the really, really cool part that I have in this book is talking about the hero within the villain. And that hero is a special kind of fat called brown fat. And it's not lumpy bumpy. It's not near the skin that you can see. You can't pinch an inch of it. It's actually paper thin sheets of fat 
that are not found near the surface of your body. It's not the muffin. It's actually <laughs> deep in your body and it's close to the bone near your muscles and your tendons called brown fat. And brown fat actually is a space heater that can ignite like the jets of flame on your gas stovetop. And when you ignite the stovetop to cook, and that's a brown fat firing, what it has to do is has to draw down fuel. It's got to get the fuel someplace. So this healthy, helpful fat, brown fat, can burn down excess fuel in the body, and it draws it right from the harmful fat. So good fat can fight bad fat. And that's one path towards health I talk about. Yeah, that's so exciting. And that reminds me, so I just have to bring up, because one of my favorite things in your book, and I was also one of my favorite things that need to be disease, is you have this wonderful list of foods, right? So it need to beat disease. You had this wonderful list of disease-fighting, health-promoting foods that support your five health defenses. In this book, you have a different list of foods. Would you like to tell our readers a little bit about that? Right. Well, actually, so I've got two big lists of foods. The first list that people should know about is I actually done the heavy lifting for the reader to figure out what foods actually slow down your metabolism. What foods are not helpful oh, to have? Yes. What foods do you want to yes. cut down or cut out? Because you know those are the useful things to know about, right? Like you can't make forward progress until you take the lead back, the lead out of your backpack. You know. Yes. So I give a list of that, and you See, know I like to forget that one, Will, because that has onion rings on it, and we both know <laughs> how I feel about onion rings. That is true. I I know, <laughs> I know you are an onion ring aficionado. <laughs> Uh, uh, anyway, I, continue. <laughs> Sorry, but, but I, what it does have is has onions because it turns out that well, onions true. have a onions. lovely bioactive natural chemical called quercetin, which is found, by the way, near the outer layers of the onion, just under the papery skin, mm. before you get too deep. And so, what I talk about is like if you're going to get an onion, actually, it's very healthy. When you peel it, take the paper-like skin that you really don't want to be eating off, but don't cut too deep because, you know, it's so easy to accidentally peel off most of those outer layers saying, saying, screw it. I'm just going to get to the stuff on the inside. turns out that a lot of the quercetin that helps you fight body fat, elevates your metabolism, turns on that space heater, the brown fat is found. The greatest concentration is found on this wonderful outer layer layers, I should say multiple layers. So you want to keep that. So this book is really about passion for food, my passion for food, And I do have a list that basically says, you know, cut down or cut out because these things slow down your metabolism. But now then take a look at all these wonderful foods. And in fact, I list 150 of them that are all supported by human evidence, clinical evidence, human studies that show that these foods contain natural bioactives that have been proven in humans to lower body fat, improve metabolism, shrink your waistline, your waist circumference comes down. And actually make you an overall healthier person. And some of the same bioactives, same chemicals actually also light up your health defenses. So you can lose weight, but gain health. And as you elevate your metabolism. And by eating listeners, I just want you to catch that. (laughs) (laughs) Eating to beat your diet uh, is is exactly what the the title is. (laughs) By the way, in writing the book, a lot of people don't realize how important a subtitle actually is. Right. Mm, Novels can have a title without a subtitle, but I think nonfiction, sometimes it's helpful to have, you have two shots on goal. First is the main title, but then the subtitle can complement the lead line by actually providing more information. So eat to beat your diet is kind of a catchy title. It's a little kind of a, it teases you to be, how am I going to do that? How am I going to beat my diet? But really underneath it is really burn fat, heal your metabolism and live longer. And, you know, I think that that subtitle actually says more about what this book is all about. Absolutely. Absolutely. So true. Yes. And thank you for pointing that out too. All right. So let's get into some of the backstory and the how this book came about, because this is a sequel to a New York Times bestselling book. Do you want to share with us a little bit about how the idea for a sequel even came to light for you? Sure. And, you know, maybe for your listeners, this is um, something that would be helpful uh, for those who have not yet written a book to understand that 
the life of an author really evolves with the success of a first book. It's not like a resume builder. I mean, maybe perhaps it is, but I mean, the bottom line is that if you write a book, it's like having a baby, it's like having a child. That child is now part of the family of your life and it affects what you do. So my first book was really written because I had done a lot of research and had been quite successful in uh, my medical research career. And when you and I met in your role as an author coach, which I have to say was game-changing for me. So anybody listening to this, you've got to actually, and you want to write a book, you know, you want to actually follow up with Robin Colucci because she took somebody who was not certain that he could write a book, should write a book, would write a book. And I learned something about myself to write a book about the things that actually I can uniquely contribute to the canon of books, really. And the process was eye-opening for me. And I want to talk about the first book, you know, as a setup for the second. In the first book, I had no idea that I had to put together a proposal. I, like many people, just thought that, you know, well, authors write a book and then you shop it around until... Like J.K. Rowling, you get rejected until you either jump in front of the train or, you know, or have the <laughs> Harry Potter world. You know, I mean, I didn't know. And what I learned was the thought process that goes into constructing a story. And in my case, it's nonfiction, but it's still a story. Is structured within a proposal. And that proposal has to really have a beginning, a middle, and end. It's got to actually compare what you're doing to what else is out there. It had to play on my own strengths. And in doing this the first time around, I realized that my strengths are as a scientist, as a physician, as somebody who also has led a life, a career of being audacious when it comes to medicine. So I'm a leader, not a follower. I'm a path breaker, not a just a, you know, like a path walker. I chop down the bushes in the Amazon. I don't just kind of like go on the package tour that, that somebody yeah. else leads. And we wrote Eat to Beat Disease. I wrote it, but you know, had your help and the help of many, many other people. I think that's another thing that I realized from my first book is that a well-constructed story narrative for nonfiction, having a beginning, middle, and end, has an author, somebody who's doing the keystrokes or old in the old days would be pen strokes, really still benefits dramatically from actually having a team. And yeah. so I wanted to assemble my team early with this second book to really consider what could be written, should be written. And the way that the second book came about after the success of the first one was the reward for a successful first book is that your publisher, your agent came back to me, my publisher agent and said, Hey, you know what? We'd love to have you at bat again. And here's another book deal. Uh What a gift that is, right? I mean, to get one book deal, to have one agent, I mean, is an amazing thing to have one publisher But to really have that circle around again, I have to tell you, it gave me a moment of anxiety because I knew how much work went into writing the first one. Right. (laughs) And one of the first things I did for you in the audience is I went and called my author coach, Robin Colucci. And I basically said, look, I have the opportunity to write another book. What am I going to do? And it's not the lack of confidence. It was really the lack of clarity. Mm -hmm. And I think that for writing a second book, the first thing I needed to have was clarity. Here's what I knew. I knew my publisher wanted me to write a diet book. I knew they wanted me to write a weight loss book, or they wanted me to write a cookbook. And I also had the clarity, the self-knowledge that I didn't want to do any of those things. So I felt like I was in the ultimate conundrum, right? I have a successful first book. My publisher, my agent comes back to say, we want you to write a book that I really didn't want to write. Right. In fact, I hate diet books. In fact, I think I told you that. You know, yes, you did. <laughs> in fact, in this new book, in this new book, in the introduction, I write exactly that. Exactly. You tell the reader right away too. <laughs> uh, if nothing else, very candid about this right at the yeah. get-go. But that's part of the process. Mm-hmm. I had to confront the thing I didn't want to do mm-hmm. before I could find the thing that I didn't want to do. It's going to be different for different authors, but I can tell you for me to do the second book, I had to first decide what I didn't want to do. And it took a bit of courage, I have to say, to push back against the publisher, Mm -hmm. you know, who offered a handsome deal and my agent who always has my back, but commercially my agent's instincts are always really good. And I thought, you know, but I really don't want to do that. And by the way, I kind of also felt that 
I needed to examine why I wanted to write a second book. I didn't need to please my mommy, you know? I mean, right, I, right. <laughs> I, and that's really important. You know, yeah. I think for an author, why do you want to do this? Like I want, wrote one book. I was very happy. I think you and I talked about this after I saw the first hardbound copy of my first book, Eat to Beat Disease. This was before it became a New York Times bestseller. And I was just so pleased to see the product of all this hard work. I think another thing that I realized as a first-time author back then was, you know, you see this book, I didn't jump up and down for joy, like, oh my God, here it is. I looked at this, I'm like, wow, this is the result of all that hard work, okay? And, you know, it was really, I was proud of the amount of work, but to this day, when I look at my first book, Eat to Beat Disease, I respect all the work that went into it. And the tremendous effort that everyone, including you, Robin, and the important role you played in helping to coach me along the way from formulating the ideas to structuring to really serving as my gut check copy editor, you know, (laughs) finisher and brick wall to bounce ideas off of, uh, (laughs) occasionally life coach, um, (laughs) maybe maybe once or twice therapist um, (laughs) along the way. I remember one time I called you up and I'm like, man... I know you don't have a couch in front of you, but I got to lie down in front of one and and how frustrated I am, (laughs) but I got through it. And so when I look at my first book, that's what I see. So that was a bit of the anxiety I had about the Mm -hmm. second book is like, oh my gosh, I got to do this all over again. Yeah. And in a topic that I was reluctant to actually write about, like all that means it's a big, like no go. And I remember you and I having this conversation. If this is not something I wanted to do, I needed to have the courage to say, I'm not going to write it even at the expense of not doing the book deal. But what was so helpful, and again, you know, you as my author coach, conciliary, I think was able to help me through a process. And by the way, the second book took a lot longer to formulate. I thought, thinking about oh, it, yeah. the first yeah, one. For sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> In fact, people, I'm totally fine <laughs> with revealing this. We wrote it twice. Yeah. <laughs> spent the whole year writing the first version, right? <laughs> literally soup to nuts. And then yeah. I took a break for about six That's weeks. Right. And at the end of that, I came back and I called you up and I'm like, you know what? I think let's start again from scratch. Yeah. You know, it, it's like that souffle that wasn't rising in the it oven. So I'm, like, just, I'm gonna throw this in the trash. Let's get those eggs out again and whip them up. <laughs> But the second time was the trick and we really got it right. And, you know, this actually directly addresses the question you asked, you know, like what went into the second book? And I think, you know, we talked about this a little bit was really me examining what story I wanted to tell. Is there a new story to tell? What did I not want to do? And I think that was for me in this book as important as saying what I wanted to do. And I was willing to forsake writing the book. If I was being forced with a gun to my head to actually write something I didn't want to write, I would say, no, thank you. All Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. Might sound like a funny thing for an author to say, but I think it's a principled thing to say nobody in their right mind should spend the kind of time and commitment and investment it takes to write a book, no matter who you are and how successful you are, if it's not something you want to do. Absolutely. Too much work. Okay. Mm -hmm. But once you find that sweet spot, it is so worth it. And it's a... You know how, like, I give you an analogy for you listeners. It's like going to college. When you're in high school, you think you're all that. Then you apply to college and you get there and you're starting from scratch. That's what it felt like when I actually started my second book. And you had to learn the course catalog and the new professors and your community all over again. Still had your old friends. Okay. But, you know, you have to learn a whole new set of skills. And the process was really developing the narrative arc, looking what the parts of the book are, And for me, because research is so critical for it, I had to recruit a new research team, a new writing team. And for me, by the way, and I think it's so important to say this, I'm a doctor and a scientist. I'm actually quite a busy person. Even for my first book, you know, like the idea was like, well, get a ghostwriter. You know, you don't have time to write this kind of stuff. And I think what I realized is that nobody can write the story I want to tell like me. Mm -hmm. And if you remember, we had a couple of tries. Yeah. We did. Mm -hmm. And they flunked. Spectacularly flunked, as I recall. (laughs) And so it's not even worth doing it. Like I realize as an author, now a second time author, there's nothing like doing it yourself. And you have to own that whole process intellectually first before you really even write 
the first word. And even after you start writing the first word, you still might evolve, change your mind, shape shift, as we did in this particular book. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you one thing that I did do at the beginning, we talked about this whole idea of a sequel. I literally yes, I um, talked to a few friends of mine who live in Los Angeles, who are in the entertainment industry in Hollywood. They're directors, screenwriters. They went to film school. And I asked them, what's the secret to a sequel, right? I mean, we all know that many movies are made that then have a sequel because the first ones are successful. And oftentimes, more often than not, the sequel really stinks. Right. It's a stinker, a dis- big disappointment. And of course, then you'll never see a third Part movie three, and or- usually it kills the career of the people who acted in the first one. Right, right. right. Yeah. <laughs> like there was Jaws, but you know, I don't know about the rest of the sequel. <laughs> right. Jaws was great. Yeah. yeah. Right. And <laughs> authors take note, Peter Benchley did not write the sequels. Right. right? There you go. Yeah. <laughs> so if you are in the driver's seat as an author, you have to really be able to understand the sequel. So that's what I wanted to know. And, you know, it was so interesting. My Hollywood friends told me, you know, actually there is kind of a method to the madness of sequels that, you know, a lot of people in Hollywood have figured out. You have to take a look at the success factors of the first story, break them down. And usually there's a hero that a protagonist that faces some obstacle or challenge. And for whatever reason, there's some magic to the first story that makes people go, wow, That was amazing, whether it's Harry Potter, Indiana Jones, you know, uh, the Corleone family and the Godfather, uh, Han Solo and Luke Skywalker, whatever it is, certain, I guess, Maverick, you know, in in, uh, Top Gun, whatever it is, there's something that makes people cheer and want to see more. So in the sequel, what I learned is that, you know, you have to give people what they want from the best elements of the first story, and you got to see them right away. The reader has to actually recognize those heroes that they love so much from the first book immediately in the second book. Mm-hmm. And then what you have to do is to start them off in some new adventure that seems fresh. And then you have to give them an enemy, an obstacle, a villain that's much bigger than the villain of the first one. So, you know, like Star Wars, the first villain was, you know, was Darth Vader and Empire Strikes Back. That was the evil emperor, like even a, the He's OG lost. of yeah, the yeah, Dark Side, yeah. right? <laughs> And the Death Star was back, but there were new villains and there were new people, new characters. You know, there's the, all the different characters that were brand new. And so you have to introduce new characters. And that's what I did in this book as well. I literally had a gigantic, I went to Staples and I bought, you know, one of those uh, giant post-it pads and I bought a uh-huh. box of Sharpies. I remember and, that too, yeah. <laughs> and, and I remember I had my, like, we were on a FaceTime and, and I was in my backyard. Huge diagram. With these diagrams of like act one, act two, act three. <laughs> Where are the heroes? What's the villain? Yeah. And then the through line that has to take them through it. And the other thing that I learned is that, you know, in sequels, you have to surprise the audience. The villains can't be that bad. They have to be some humanizing part. And you have to have some surprises. Like the villains are actually, some people you think are villains, our characters are actually heroes. Some heroes are actually the bad guys. And like in Star yeah. Wars, are like, Luke is going to the dark side and Darth Vader is, I am your father. Like, oh my gosh, <laughs> really? Or one of the most famous sequels of all times, The Godfather Part Two, mm. right? Fredo set up the hit for Michael Corleone. Yeah. And Michael Corleone kills his brother. Like, oh my gosh. Right. Those are the kind of like the table turners, the jaw dropper parts that need to be in a sequel. So I put that in this book. Like, yes. so it was really thought out, mapped to be a sequel. By the way, for anyone listening, I, I write about health and wellness. I write about research and medicine. And yet here I am talking about the <laughs> strategies of Hollywood and sequel design. And in the third act, you got to give people what they want. Okay. That's right. Okay. So in my case, by the way, so Hollywood, what do you recognize? Star Wars at the third act, you got the Death Star. They're flying down the little pike again and now they got to drop the little missile down the hole and the death star blows up and everybody stands up and cheers and they can't wait for the third movie to come out right and the godfather at the very end you know all of a sudden you get the same quick you know like back-to-back corleone family knocks out all the enemies and they get back together again so that's what i had to do is sort of in the third act of this book and i suppose maybe that's something i really learned the second time around is that in fact there really is this stagecraft in telling a story, fiction or nonfiction, that you need to be able to help the reader, make it easy for the reader to enjoy and look forward to. 
and take them through. And so the third act for me, I give people a plan, just like I did in my first book. I give people tips, life tips in this life book. And by the way, the one thing I did do the second book that I didn't do in the first one, because I was, I don't know, I would say as a first time author, I was tentative. I was conservative. I was, I mean, I'm naturally a conservative guy in some respects, private. But in this particular book, I started to really share more of myself. I think we're in a more authenticity seeking environment anyway. So my third act, I actually wrote about one of my childhood heroes, Bruce Lee. You know, I'm probably one of the few doctor scientists who write a book about metabolism that actually have a whole chapter about Bruce Lee. (laughs) I think that's one of my favorite chapters of the book, actually. (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't write about the history or the story. I I wrote about what I got out of it. So this is, by the way, I think for your listeners as well, another thing that I got comfortable with in my second book, which is how do I plumb my own history, my own story a little bit more? How do I reach into my own well to find things that are very genuine, very authentic, very unique to apply, to share with the reader? Because if I was a reader, I would want an author to take me on their journey a little bit. And so I think that's the other thing that I think the second time around, I learned as an author is that I'm not only the storyteller, I'm also an audience following along with it. And I have an unfair advantage compared to the reader, which is I can actually tell more of that story. Yeah. And you lived it. And I think that that was such an important addition to, you know, be willing to share more about your own personal evolution and how you apply some of the principles, actually all of these principles, for example, that Bruce Lee embodied and taught and how you applied them in your own life and how you can apply them to eating to beat your diet, I thought it was, you know, just really a great addition. Yeah. And, you know, using the same kind of map, strategy map, I've now, even though it's only been a few months since I hit send to the manuscript, you know, I'm already in the back of my mind clicking through the third of this, you know, this trilogy, because I am lucky I actually got a two book deal. I have another one to deliver. And I now know enough about this narrative arc to really sort of think through what would I actually deliver. So one of the things that I did, by the way, that I think digital technology makes it easier to do, as I was writing and researching and putting my ideas down on the document, I would always see information that I thought was so fascinating, but not quite suitable for the particular project I'm working on now. Mm -hmm. So I went into the notes program. I work on a Mac and I opened up a note document that I call book three, next book. Mm -hmm. And anytime I saw something that might be useful for the next book, I just copied it and I Mm -hmm. put the link right in there. And so now I have this entire collection of links to stimulate my ideas, my creativity. Hopefully I'm going to go back to some of it for the next book. And so that's another thing that I think I learned as an author, just because of who I am, I'm seeing stuff all the time. Not everything's going to go into the first book. I remember you once called this like put things into a slush pile. Yes. <laughs> a slush pile. Yeah. <laughs> slush pile. In this particular case, what I'm actually doing is actually putting things in sort of future storage so mm-hmm. that I could kind of, um, I'm paying it forward a little bit in order to be able yeah. to actually come back Brilliant. to something later. It may or may not pay off for me, but at least I know where to start. Absolutely. So, That's you know, maybe thing. the thing to <laughs> think about, like, well, you know, it's just a, uh, Well, let me have you ask me the next question. There's so much that I learned in the second book. Well, I know. I mean, is there something that's present for you? Go ahead and share it. Well, I think a lot of people underestimate the need for a team. Mm -hmm. And if I were coaching somebody who was doing a first book or a second book, I would say it's perfectly, you know, a lot of people say, I got to write it myself. I want to feel like this is my book. I don't need anybody else involved. And I might have actually thought about that at the beginning at some point when I first set out to be an author. But I think I quickly realized that having a team is really useful. To formulate a proposal, it's very important to have somebody who understands the structure of that proposal. If this isn't what you do for a living, don't think that you're going to know how to do this. And so there are professionals like you, Robin, who actually provided that framework so I could actually get through that process. 
Now, I didn't have to write a proposal for the sequel because the publisher actually had enough confidence in me for the first one. To some extent, that actually handicapped me because I didn't have as organized. Yes. We, I remember we talked about that, that, yeah. that because we had done the proposal for the first book, we knew exactly where we were going when we started writing. You yeah. know, I would almost say it's so worth it to organize your thoughts in a proposal. Imagine those three acts, part mm-hmm. one or three parts, try to break things down into the narrative, map it all out. You know, if you're like me, you go to Staples and I'm a visual person and get your Sharpies and draw it out. You know, I remember you just reminded me of something in, from book one, where before you would write the chapter, you would write a treatment for the chapter. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I did that for this too, because I talked to some screenwriters and they're like, yeah, yeah you know, you got to find out where those surprises are. What right. is that paragraph that describes a moment that Darth Vader reveals that he is Luke's father? You know, like before you get in there and start doing the word crafting, you got to have to figure out, mm-hmm. it's almost like a puzzle to put together. What are the yeah. pieces? And I really think it was so helpful for us to think about the narrative of this, but the construction of a proposal, oh, back to the team, Yeah, um, yeah. having somebody to help me with the proposal is critical. I think that in starting the writing process, an author coach sounds like, you know, maybe I can't do it by yourself, but that's not the case. What I found an author coach actually, and you are my author coach, Robin, so I'm preaching to the choir, but I'm sharing, really sharing with your listeners. The author coach is your silent partner that only speaks to you. Your family won't know these conversations. Your best friends won't know these conversations. You probably don't even want to share them with your agent or your publisher. These are sort of the private thoughts with a partner of the project who was there sort of as your personal Yoda. And I'm not that even that big a Star Wars fan. (laughs) Analogy a lot, because I think everybody resonates with that to really be able to actually help walk that path along with you And then I think what I've learned, my team was, I wrote every word, but Uh that was done with kind of a brain trust of people that I worked with to formulate the general structure of what it was I was Mm -hmm. actually going to do. That team, which wound up being somebody who could help me edit on a short-term, quick turnaround basis. And then what I I I believe that was my role, right? That was your role. Okay, so for anybody listening to this, Robin, I got it wore, first. Robin wears many, many hats. Um, I needed less coaching and figuring, you know, like where once you're you know, writing, to, right? We were just, yeah, yeah. There's a whole other. Well, that's the thing that's part of the team. Once you start writing, it's not to be underestimated. I mean, look, I had two shots on goal this time at doing this, and both worked for me, getting me to the manuscript side, to the writing part. But I can tell you that in both cases. When I submitted chapters or parts of the manuscript to the publisher, I have been very, very, I use we because I always think about the team that I brought into this, Mm -hmm. makes you feel less lonely, but also it really properly credits the people that are involved with putting together a quality product out. I'd gotten very, very few red lines. Yes. The nightmare story I've heard from other friends who are authors is they pour their heart into writing what they really want to say by themselves, they send it to their editor from their publisher, and then they get back, like, redo the whole chapter, rip this apart, Mm -hmm. tear this down. And that would have killed me, honestly. And we got so few red lines that, you know, when I talked to my agent about this, when I talked to other team members and other authors, they're like, wow, how did that happen? Well, it's because I had a team assembled. I had a copy editor, a sounding board, I had somebody who played the role of an embellisher. Embellishment mm-hmm. really means another layer of reading mm-hmm. before I finally turn to the chapter to just help me think through, are there some turns of phrase? Mm-hmm. Are there some tiny little bits of organization? Is there a synonym I missed? Yeah. Is there an analogy that could actually be even better? And it's a suggester, not a writer. I mean, mm-hmm. I wrote every word yes, myself, but with this team... Mm-hmm. I was able to pull off something that I feel like was better than having me solo it and certainly saved me the pain of having my editor at the publisher send back all these red lines, ripping it apart. So, okay, I, I, you'll I, never I, say this. So, I want to share because I remember there was one chapter in particular in Eat to Beat Disease that we got back 
that it was your agent or your editor said it was probably the best chapter they'd ever read. Yeah, the agent. <laughs> yeah. Well, but you know, <laughs> but, but listen, this means that, like, you know, the analogy would be like if we were in a cooking competition, it wasn't a one person show right. knocking off the fancy meal. Mm-hmm. I had a whole team of people that were helping me with prep and mm-hmm. assistance at the same time. And so what we were able to do as a team, and I really want to say this, like I had a team, I invested in a team. I had to put the time into develop the relationships, do the research, have those conversations. And yeah, it also was a financial investment, but so worth it to be able to actually have a team with me. So I never felt alone. I always had co-pilots in the plane. I could leave the cockpit to go to the bathroom kind of thing without crashing the plane. And that's what actually has been my experience. I strongly recommend anybody who is thinking about this or who is in a process of it, get your team together. It's so absolutely worth it. And by the way, you know, for me, I know I talked about the writing team, but I also had a research team, both books. These people read original research, analyzed it, synthesized it, summarized it, talked with me about it, pointed out nuances. Of course, I read the studies myself as well, but I can't write and read and research and critique and like, it's just too much. And then, so I needed to have part of my team there. And, you know, when people ask me, like, how did you pull this off? I say, it, I wrote every single word, but it wasn't just me involved in this. I did have a team. Yeah. And boy, that research team, there's just no way. We'd still be writing book one, probably, if you didn't have to. <laughs> well, yes. yes. Well, and by the way, you know, like for book two, I have to tell you, I had a, a phenomenal person who was helping me. And by the way, you know, I think for other people who are like, how did I find my research team? I went to a local nutrition school and I reached out to faculty and I said, hey, do you know of any students, grad students, recent grads who are smart, sharp, and who want to actually get some experience doing something in the real world, which is writing a book written by a New York Times bestseller. And it was amazing. All the resumes that I got approached me. All the people said, I want to help. I want to help. I want to help. And so I actually was in the catbird seat being able to choose the best people. So for somebody who is intimidated by like, well, how do I get a researcher? I mean, I think that even if you're writing about history or you're writing fantasy novel, I mean, there's probably something that you would like to have somebody help you research because if you're especially in the middle of writing. And I found that, you know, going to the local universities, writing a faculty member, which you can find their email online and telling them what you're trying to do, being very honest about it. And I had a small budget, like, you know, it's really honoraria to pay these students, but Mm -hmm. man, they got a great experience. And some of them were superstars. Yeah. Superstars made my life so much easier on one hand, but I also say made the product a lot better of what I wrote. Right. And really what a wonderful thing for their resume, you know, as they're launching into their careers later on. So yeah. Well, and you know, as a team member, if you're getting people, it is kind of like making a movie, making a film. It's a project, it's a creative project. And if you're successful at the end, everyone's going to feel good about their project. I feel great about Eat to Beat Your Diet. Like I was a little uncertain at the very, very beginning of writing, like what would I put into a second book? Would it feel, I think my second book feels better to me than my first book, actually. Yeah, I agree. And I'm super excited to hold it in my hands in full print. (laughs) Yeah, no, I mean, I'm excited. I'm excited for people to have it as well. I think the other thing that I, in my first book, I wrote about topics like regeneration and DNA repair and, and angiogenesis. I mean, I tackled topics that people don't know very much about that I'm an expert in. So that was fun for me to write. And I think the readers, they introduced into brand new ideas. In this second book, I was wading into topics that everyone thinks they know a lot about, which is Mm. body fat and dieting and metabolism. And so I would say the second book, what I focused on is bringing people the not so obvious. Yes. The surprise, the turnarounds, how can you upend ideas? And maybe that's another thing, you know, to share with your readers is that, you know, whatever it is that you want to communicate to somebody, it's not just what you want them to hear that you have to say, but think about what would give them shock and awe and delight if they read it because they thought they knew something about what you're writing about and use those as hooks throughout the narrative 
because yeah. that's how you keep people interested. This is a pretty big book, but I really try to, oh, you know, one thing I did this time that I didn't do the first book, I decided I would actually put some art into this book. So I went that's and right. found- That's right. Yes. Yes. I, I found yes. engravings. I'm a little bit of a history geek myself and <laughs> history of science. And so, you know, when I read about metabolism, I went all the way back to like the 16th century and I dug out some engravings of, you know, the first guy to study metabolism built a, a chair he could yeah. sit in <laughs> yeah. and measure the food he was eating and then measure the poop that he had to figure out what the difference was. But I wanted, <laughs> you know, I described it, right? <laughs> but what I really wanted to do was to show people what this looked like. So I went and got the woodcut print yeah. way beyond, it's a, definitely in public domain, right? After all these hundreds right, of years. Right. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> But then I actually got data, cutting edge data from medical research journals, including some photographs that most people would never have actually seen. Now, like I'm a doctor, so I see this stuff, but for the general, my readers, they're not going to have to see yeah. this, but I want them to see what I see. Yes. And so in that case, I went to the researchers. I wrote them a note by email. I wrote them an email say, Hey, this is who I am. This is what I'm doing with my book. I'm going to describe something. I would love it if I could actually share with my readers this image, this photograph, this data, this graph, this chart that you had in your paper. And you know what? Every single person was delighted, gave me permission, wished me great Wonderful. luck. Yeah. And in fact, they sent me the original oh, photographs wow. and the wow. original data. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it was so awesome like to see, get that kind of support as well. So in this book, I actually throw in the types of content other people don't have. Oh, I talk about, you know, like history, another history geek thing that I did. I talked about the Silk Road. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. The most famous really trading route in human history connects Asia to the Mediterranean, to healthy cultures with healthy diets. And I basically coined this term Mediterranean. But I wanted to show the readers what I was talking about. So I went and this one I did. I did tremendous research on the Silk Road. And I went back and looked at old ancient maps of the Silk Road. Then I went to find an illustrator, a graphic designer who's really good at doing maps. And I asked her, if she's a friend of mine, actually, if she could draw me a fresh map of the Silk Road. Um, I didn't know that that was original for the book in that way. Now I'm learning something today. This is great. I didn't yeah, well, know you've done that. <laughs> so, you know, like it's creative, right? So if you have, yeah, I love you it. know, it's sort of like world building. They tell you to draw the map right. of the planet or the, the fantastical world that you're in, where the villages, where's the sea, where's the lake, where's the mountain. I drew it out for the readers so that as I'm explaining the Silk Road, they would understand. And I did the same thing, by the way, with um, people like Mediterranean diet or Asian diet. Well, you know, Mediterranean diet, people think of like Italy and Greece and maybe Spain. Asian diet, people think of Chinese food, Japanese food, Italian food, Thai food, whatever the local restaurants that they're used to going to. But people have no idea that like there's 27 countries surrounding the Mediterranean Sea. Mm -hmm. So I had my illustrator draw me a map of the Mediterranean Sea, but specifically outline all the countries around it. So you can see that Tunisia and Egypt and Israel, all considered Mediterranean countries, yes. right? Yes. Open your mind, yeah. like realize that this is a lot bigger. The world I'm sharing with you is a lot bigger than you thought. And China yes. is like, I mean, Asia is like 40 some countries. So right. all those out. And I think that what I did this time is really just threw myself a little bit more into mm -hmm. the creative craft of putting the story together. It took a year longer than I thought we set out for, right. <laughs> but it was worth it. I was just going to say, but it's so worth it. <laughs> And for you listeners, I can't thank Robin enough because oh my gosh. She, she got me into this world. And then I thought, well, I wrote one book. That's nice. That was a great experience. I definitely got a lot out of it. And, and Robin played a big role, a similar role all throughout for that one. The second round, I had an even better experience, better time. It, it was no less grueling, I have to say. Yeah, yeah. But that's just part of any kind of creative project you do. You have to, you know that you're doing something worthwhile when you get lost in it and you feel the traction and it's pushing back at you and you've got a problem solve. And in fact, you know, if it was that easy, I probably wouldn't be that happy with it. Yeah. Right. Not yes. Knowing you, that's true. <laughs> that's I, but I, I think that's part of why it's 
your work is so excellent because you're suspicious if it feels too easy and you look deeper to see what you might be missing, which is a great, I think it's paid off in spades in both books as well as other aspects. Well, I mean, you know, and the thing is that I know, Robin, since I've also known other first-time authors and second-time authors who are working with you as well, just how it's not a formula that I've been talking about. It's a method. Mm -hmm. I know how successful that method is, not only now having written two books, using that method that I largely learned from you and you know made some of it my own, but I know that from other authors who've worked with you that that's also paid off for them very, very successfully as well. So this is actually, again, it's not a formula. Don't let anybody tell you it's a formula. It's really a method and everyone is, and it's personalized to everyone's own situation, story, personality, project. It gets really specially crafted. I think that's something you're very gifted at is really identifying the nuances of everyone that you're speaking with. And so I can't thank you enough for all the support I've gotten from you. And I can't wait to see this next book come out and realize it, by the way, this is just now because I'm in it, like it's going to be a bridge to the third book. And so it's a trilogy, you know, it'll be fun. All right. Thank you, first of all, for your very kind words. I am humbled and honored by everything that you said. I'm going to take us because I cannot believe how we have burned up so much time, but this has been so fun. I have one final signature question that I love to ask all of my guests, which is, what have I not asked you that you would love to answer? You've not asked me about the financial aspects of the writing. And I think that honestly, for anybody who's serious about getting into an author's corner, it's worthwhile understanding what we go through. First of all, if you do the homework and create a proposal and you get an agent and you decide to do traditional publishing through a, you know, one of the big five publishing houses, I don't know any other way of doing it. That happens to be my path and I would recommend it to anybody. You get a bigger team. You get an advance from the publisher if they like your what you're offering and what you're going to write. That advance, whether it's big or small, isn't something that you should go out and, you know, buy a new car with. Right. <laughs> oh, yes. This is very important. Yes, this is great. Yeah. And I think in the author's corner where, you know, we can actually talk about things with other authors and authors to be, what I would tell you is that first, it's called an advance because a publisher expects to make it back with book sales, which means that they actually expect you to, as the author, to do your best to promote it, to get the word out about it, and to participate. You're not just the writer. You're not the scribe. You're also the face. You're the owner. You are the marketer of your book, and there's nothing to be ashamed of about that. But it's a very, very different process to market your book, to get behind your book, to promote your book. And there's nothing embarrassing about it. It's you know, like how parents are proud of their kids. And (laughs) you're really talking about the best parts of your kids to your community and community readers. But I would also say the financial aspect is, and you need to spend some of that advance if you can towards marketing your book. And it could be using things for publicity, public relations, maybe doing a press release, or by the way, some easy things that do cost money. If you want to get a professional photographer to take author pictures, mm-hmm. do it. You're going to need it for your book jacket. Mm-hmm. Have them take some more photographs. They're going to be used when you go on a book tour. Or if you're self-published in any event, you're going to go on social media. Mm-hmm. You want to be able to give a podcaster a picture for them to use. All those things cost money. You don't think about that mm-hmm. at the beginning, but that's the best way to use your advance. And then, you know, the team that we've been discussing, that's the investment as well, and well worth that investment. Dig deep, put your money wisely. Time is money and Mm -hmm. success, you know, begets success. And so I think that like investing in your college education, it's definitely worth it if you choose your path wisely. And that's, I think, something for people to understand, investing in your team, investing in the marketing, that's what the advance is all about. And then I would also say that the idea, another thing that I think is really important is that you're not going to get rich off of your book. Your book is a vehicle to really communicate your ideas and your ideas have the potential to be the basis for new opportunities that you can do to further your career, 
get a new job, get promoted within your current job, start a company, do something yeah, new, start a new business, start a new offering, create some new offerings that you create never some had. new offerings. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that that's how I think it's really wise for people to think about it as well. The method that we've been talking about on this episode is all about sort of the what goes on, you know, at least what I was sharing in the mind and the experience of a writer for me in the second book. And I was reflecting on my first book, but really there are some nuts and bolts that you haven't asked about that are important. I think yeah. for somebody getting into this, invest in your team know that you're going to be expected to invest. If you have a publisher, invest in helping to promote your work, your baby. And especially maybe it's even more important if you're self-publishing that you're going to have to get out there and really promote yourself heavily. So yeah, well, those it's, are things. It's your money. You're the publisher. So it's your money on the line if you're the self-publisher. But, yeah. I mean, people um, don't generally talk about the business of that. And I know many of my friends who are authors are also very mom and very, discreet about advances and how they use it. But I'm a very straightforward person. Like, don't expect that when you get a, an advance, no matter what the size is, small or big, okay, that, you know, you just blow it someplace. All right. If you want to celebrate, go yeah. eat some nice and healthy food. It's delicious. <laughs> but really think about it's an investment. Mm -hmm. It's a publisher investing in you. And yeah. Then you and yourself. just to add to that, because one of the things that the publisher is going to look at is how quickly do your actual book sales earn out is the term earn out the advance. So how quickly do you sell enough books to pay for what they fronted you? And so that they're into a profit mode, you know, in terms of your royalty, and then you start getting additional royalties. And the longer that takes, the less likely you are to get another deal. Right, right. Well, I mean, the other thing that, you know, people like to talk about big advances, they hardly happen anymore, by the way. But when they happen, just recognize that the bigger the advance, the longer it's going to take for you to do the earn out. Yes, right? exactly. So because <laughs> you got to help the publisher make that money back, which means then you have to invest even further and harder into yeah. the marketing and promotions. I have a public relations team that works with mm -hmm. me. I'm very fortunate. I've got a great team. I have people that help me on social, social media. By the way, another thing is that when I launched my first book, it was almost successful despite the odds because I didn't have really any social media. I think I told you this, Robin. My friends on Facebook were my actual friends. <laughs> so all 30 of them. Right. <laughs> And what I had to do is <laughs> I really, remember this. <laughs> I had to build a community on social. Yeah. And I guess, you know, if you're an author and you don't have a social presence, don't worry. I did it from zero. Yeah. Every group starts with zero, but yeah. you don't want it to stay at zero. You want to actually start to build it up. Yeah. 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 And you had other aspects of your platform that were very strong. And I'm glad you brought that up because just as a little teaching moment for our listeners, I think people, when they think about a book proposal and they think about a platform and having to, because you know, when you describe your platform, you're basically saying, see, I can sell books. Here's proof. I have an audience. And what I always tell people is you don't have to be everywhere in these huge numbers. You just have to have a couple of areas where you're very strong, right? So as I recall, when you started, you were really, really strong in TV appearances. You were super strong with your TED Talk. At the time, I think you had over 9 million views. I think now you're over 12 to your TED Talk. And so you had enough without having any social media, which is, is a great example of you don't need to be everywhere to get that first book deal. And having that social presence, building that has clearly helped continue the momentum with the book, I imagine. Yeah. And honestly, if you're writing a nonfiction book that is based on your area of special expertise or special focus, where you have something unique to tell that people are interested in learning about, I would say, be yourself. Because even when you're done writing the book, and it's going to take quite an effort to write a book, once you're done, stick with your knitting, stay in your own lane, keep yeah. being relevant, keep becoming the expert, keep pushing forward. Because that's, at the end of the day, what's going to make you interesting. You don't want to just be regurgitating what you wrote, because by the time you turn right. in the manuscript, what you wrote is maybe brand new to the reader, 
But to you as the expert, it's something that you already knew. So just keep on plowing forward and staying as relevant as you possibly can. Well, this has been so chock full of insight and surprises and incredible information. Uh, I just want to take this moment to thank you for being with us today on The Author's Corner. Thank you very much, Robin. I'm happy to come back anytime to give more insights if it'd be useful for your audience. Terrific. We'll all hold you to that. Thank you for tuning in to another amazing episode of The Author's Corner. You're one step closer to writing the world-changing book you've dreamed about for years. To access today's show notes and other helpful resources, simply visit our website at theauthorscorner.com. A positive review would be appreciated. Until next time. 